Did you know that Nokia started as a paper mill in Finland? Or that Nintendo once made instant rice? Tech companies pivot all the time, and it happens pretty often in clean tech. So this week, we're tackling the most successful and unsuccessful pivots in clean tech history. But first, a quick word about Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. No pivots there. Wonder has had a singular mission to help you finance renewable energy projects. With Wonder, you can help support those projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com/gtm. Wonder with a U. wondercapital.com/gtm. The interchange is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a leader in technical solutions for solar and storage. They've got all sorts of balance of systems products. They've been serving developers and EPCs with the highest quality tech for two decades. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar around the world and growing. The gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how your project can operate at the highest level, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Welcome. I'm GTM Editor-in-Chief Stephen Lacey. I'm joined by Shale Khan, my co-host and the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Good morning, Shale. Morning, Stephen. Nice and early recording time for you. It's like 6 a.m. Mm, uh, I'm chugging my espresso at the moment, so I'm going to be... You're going you're gonna to see my uh, crescendo of my caffeine levels as the podcast continues. <laughs> so you've been at a VC firm for five months, I think. How many times have you heard this word pivot so far? I would say, um, I think conservatively, I the, the term pivot has come up in maybe 50% of the conversations that the first conversations that I've had with companies. It's like astoundingly common. And, and uh, I've also noticed that it it you just kind of breeze by it these days in in a conversation between a venture capital firm and a and a startup. It's just sort of obvious. You say, well, yeah, we were doing this thing, and then we pivoted, and now we're doing this other thing. And there's you know no more explanation required because of course it was. It was a pivot. So that brings us to the theme of this week's show: Ode to the Pivot. Why are we talking about pivots today? Well, partially for that reason that like I've just you know noticed how common it is to, you know, have this throwaway term pivot, which, which actually means something huge generally in this context, which is like, we were, we had one business model and then we changed our business model to an entirely different one. There's usually so much behind that. Like, why didn't the original business model work? What had to change? What makes the new one different? Um, and so I, I started noticing it all the time. And then as I was hearing it a lot, I was wondering, you know, do these work? Like are, are pivots successful? Is it, do we have any evidence of pivots that have been successful? Or on the other hand, are pivots, you know, generally massive failures for companies that do them? So then I just got curious about sort of pivots in history uh, amongst companies and in particular in clean tech. So what are some of the pivots that, that interest you outside of clean tech? There are a lot of them. There are some really interesting stories in tech where you have these, you know, consumer tech companies that have made products that, you know, nobody's ever heard of, or they started in like manufacturing and then moved their way into electronics. So what are the ones that are interesting to you? 
I like uh, you mentioned a, a couple of good ones. I like Suzuki is another good one, which you know we we know Suzuki, the Japanese company, largely for motorcycles and things like that today but um suzuki started out life as uh manufacturing weaving loom machines for japan's silk (laughs) industry in the like 1910 through 1930 or so range a lot of those japanese electronics companies did that yeah it's true i mean that you know there's a bunch of and some of the the large korean conglomerates as well the chibols as they're known um started out life with a much more a much different and often more simple mission um but the one i think that's like you know the quintessential pivot story modern pivot story that is is twitter right which as i'm sure you know better than most started out life as a podcasting company that's right odeo Mm -hmm. I I was wondering, as I was thinking about Twitter, you know, most people say that what a successful pivot. They started out as this lame little podcasting company, and then they became this big social media company. And I was wondering, does Stephen Lisi think that that was a mistake? I don't know that it was necessarily a bad thing that Twitter didn't stick to podcasting. With that said, I think Twitter should now build a podcast app because now is the right time to get back into it. And I think that social is a really good way to... Um, improve discovery of podcasts, which are still really difficult. And it tends to be a word of mouth type discovery process. So Twitter is really well equipped to take its built in network and recreate a, you know, a podcasting platform. I agree with you there, actually. I think that my experience of podcasts is I listen to a lot of them. And despite the fact that I'm a regular listener to a lot of podcasts, I still find myself wanting to discover more podcasts. And I don't have a good way to do that right now. I look at the, you know, the iTunes like rankings and that doesn't help me a whole lot. Like it's, it's all, you know, Joe Rogan or, uh, the latest like crime, you know, real, real life crime story podcast. So I would love for like a good Twitter curated situation. All right. So, uh, we could talk about pivots all day and tech. Let's talk about clean tech. We've got some successful pivots to talk about, and then we've got some unsuccessful pivots to talk about. Um, I think I have a pretty good list here. I'm sure you've got a good one, too. So I want to hear from you first. What's your um, opinion on the best clean tech pivot of all time? Okay, so my first thought was going to be a little bit of log rolling for EIP because my original pick was going to be Mosaic. Um, so, you know, disc- fair disclosure, Energy Impact Partners is an investor in Mosaic, a proud one. So I'm going to give you the quick explanation of why that was my first choice, but then make it not my ultimate choice. Mosaic is cool because Mosaic started life as a crowdfunding platform for solar projects um, and then realized that that was a tough business to scale. It was tough to make money in. And so they pivoted to becoming a residential solar lender, which, you know, sounds obvious, but Besides the fact that they're both sort of in the financing universe for solar, they're actually very different businesses. Uh, and it turned out to be, you know, a hugely successful pivot. Mosaic is now the largest residential solar lender in the country. So I think that's a good one. But um, in order to not talk my own book too much, um, my other idea is perhaps I think going to be a little bit more controversial for some of our listeners. Nonetheless, I was inspired by a great piece in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago by Russell Gold, where he basically outlined the long extended, you could call it a pivot of NextEra um, to becoming the largest producer of wind and solar power in the world, which is what they are now. So NextEra, of course, is a um, the parent company, which owns both a regulated utility, Florida Power and Light, 
and an unregulated business, NextEra Energy Resources. So this is largely referring to the, the sort of pivot to the growth of the unregulated business. Um, they, you know, over the course of the last 15 years or so, you went from the 30th most valuable power company in America. They had a $10.2 billion valuation in 2001 to the most valuable power company in America. They now have a $74 billion market cap. They created this deregulated business in 1998 um, when they then sort of made a deal to swap a bunch of gas turbine orders for wind turbines uh, in 2002. And that set them off on this path to start building big wind farms and then ultimately big solar farms. And they don't like to talk about it a lot. Um, you you can't get answers. In fact, Russell Gold for the Wall Street Journal wrote this whole piece on them without getting them to say anything on the record. But one of the things that you know is amazing about NextEra, they're sort of notoriously uh, fiscally conservative. And yet, when we talk about most of these these new bids, these like record low price bids for in particular solar plus storage, we've talked about it in Colorado and a bunch of other places. Most of the time, NextEra is behind some, if not all of those bids. Like they, they have figured out how to build renewables and renewables plus storage at scale cheaper than almost anybody. And because they are so notoriously fiscally conservative, you know, you can, I think, pretty safely assume that they're doing it profitably. So my, this is my pitch for NextEra's pivot from being a pure regulated utility company and then a regulated utility company with a small unregulated gas business to becoming the largest producer of renewable energy in the world. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, just so that we're transparent with our audience, is NextEra a limited partner with EIP? They are not. Okay. So this is this is not me talking my book. Okay. So the question that I have is why NextEra has been so successful and a bunch of other utilities with unregulated arms that are investing in solar, renewables, efficiency, microgrid development, all of the above, have not achieved the same scale or have not been as successful. And I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Um, my My initial thought is that these companies haven't been as fiscally conservative and they've tried to do too much. And I wonder if you agree with that. I think in some cases that's true. I mean, Nexter has never been one to just chase the next sexy thing. They've largely, they've, they've made long-term bets and they've stuck with them. Um, they don't flit in and out of, of businesses. So for the most part, they've stuck with utility scale renewables, but then they did buy a commercial scale solar developer and finance provider, Smart Energy Capital, a few years ago, and that got them into the distributed solar business and then the distributed storage business as well. So they've they've played there, but they, you know, I, I think haven't, um, they, they've had long-term views, one. Two, they've maintained their, um, sort of hurdle rate requirements for projects. So they've only done things that are that are going to be profitable to them, um, which makes it a more resilient business model. And then three, and this is maybe a little bit flimsier, but I think has been true, you know, the contrast that people like to make between how NextEra has gone about this and how NRG went about this um, comes in a couple of different frames. One is the you know, do you go after all the all the futuristic stuff all at once, which is sort of what David Crane was trying to do at NRG when he was attempting their big pivot. Um, 
And two, how do you talk about it to investors? And I think that number two is a, is a key one because again, Nextera is is really quiet about this. Um, and when they talk about it, they talk about it in sort of kind of bland and really financially oriented terms. So they're they're you know in this extended process of convincing investors that this is the right business model for them, and they've done a better job of that than I think a lot of the other players have. Okay. I've got a really good one. You know this little company called Vestas, right? I do. As of 2017, it was the biggest manufacturer of wind turbines in the world. Can you guess how this Danish company got its start? Oh, no. No, I assumed they were always a wind turbine manufacturer. No, they've manufactured a ton of different stuff. So it was um, formed in the 30s by a guy named Hans Smith Hansen as a family business building steel window frames for buildings. And then they were pretty successful leading up to World War II. And after World War II, with metal supplies being rationed, the company nearly collapses. After World War II, Hans' son Peter moves into some old German military barracks and starts making, of all things, kitchen appliances. So they make kitchen appliances for a while. And then into the 50s, the company buys a patent for a milk chiller. And then they use that cooling technology. They realize that it's equipped as a cooling technology for turbochargers and internal combustion engines. So they do that for a little while. And then moving into the 60s, they shift into hydraulic cranes for trucks. So throughout the 60s, the hydraulic cranes are a big business for Vestas, and that's like their first um, big international export. And then we get into the 70s, and the oil supply crisis hits. And this is where the big pivot comes. Using basically modified farm equipment, um, Vestas starts secretly developing a wind turbine, and it doesn't tell anyone about it because it's you know, a pretty unproven technology, um, but they're really starting to think about alternative energy supplies. And it, its first model in the late 70s was an egg beater-shaped wind turbine. You still see some of these touted by startups who think that they're going to create a better um, wind turbine design. But in fact, it didn't work. So they brought in an outside engineer who helped them build one of the first three-bladed industrial wind turbines, a 30-kilowatt machine. And then... This big accelerator of the pivot came in the 80s when a company called Zond ordered a couple turbines, liked it, and then quickly ordered 1,200 more. Do you know who Zond is, Shale? I don't. I'm loving this story. Who's Zond? (laughs) Zond was purchased by Enron in the 1990s, becoming Enron Wind. And do you know what happened to Enron Wind? Uh Enron, I know a bunch of people who worked at Enron Wind. I don't know what actually happened. Did the, the business get sold in the wind down in the bankruptcy proceedings? It did. In 2002, GE Wind, or GE bought it and made GE Wind. And of course, GE is one of the biggest powerhouses in wind today. Actually, I think it's, as of last year, the third biggest manufacturer of wind turbines as well. And they've developed massive amounts of projects around the world. So that order in the 80s completely changed Vestas. It led to the company developing multi-megawatt machines that dominate the wind landscape today. Vestas is now working on like nine megawatt plus machines. It plans to go even bigger. And this is all because of 
a series of pivots from steel window frames to kitchen appliances to hydraulic lifts and eventually to wind. And I think it's one of the greatest pivots of all time. That's amazing. I I didn't know any of that story, and that is so cool. It's funny you that it came around to GE because as you were telling the story, especially as you got into like kitchen appliances and things like that, I was thinking, you know, this kind of sounds like a small version of GE's story. I know, right? You know, another thing that's that makes uh, Vestas cool, given that story, is you said they went all in on wind in the '80s, and I feel like. One of the biggest problems, one one of the one of the biggest failings of so many clean tech companies has just been going all in on something too early and then not having the staying power. And so, as an example, like can you can you name another major wind or solar or battery? You know, pick your pick your clean energy technology major player, especially on the manufacturing side, uh, that was already all in on that business in the eighties even in the 90s. Like I feel like what happened was you had a bunch of companies that uh that were early leaders but then they ultimately they spun off those businesses, they shut them down. You know, I'm thinking of like BP Solar and all these other ones. Um so it's amazing that Vestas has been able to retain it and and stay a leader that long. Yeah, if actually if any listeners who know the history of wind or or any other industry well, let us know if there are other companies that have stayed true to this kind of investment strategy over the decades. In my experience, there are very few companies like Vestas. Many of them have maybe experimented with investment, but have sold off companies and then reinvested and made equity investments or acquisitions and gotten back into the game. And you see this general churn over time, whereas Vestas stayed true, almost collapsing multiple times, by the way. I mean, this company... It was not smooth sailing at all, but they they definitely were one of the rare ones to stay true. You know, I actually want to give a kudos to Vestas. So I knew this story because many years ago I had reported on the origins of the the wind industry, on how tech had evolved, and I learned a lot about how many of the early Danish wind turbines were built using like modified tractor components and modified agricultural equipment and. They were actually like some of the most rugged wind turbines just because um, they they knew so much about building high-quality agricultural machinery. And so, um, you know, a lot of the early wind turbines did have problems. Um, some of the blades would break off. But, you know, the core components were actually quite reliable, and they had wind turbines operating in the field for decades from, you know, that original time. But I did... So I was thinking about Vestas while I was, you know, imagining what I was going to talk about in this show. And I revisited their site just to check out their history. And they outlined this entire history on their website. And it has a complete description of technical failures and financial troubles. It's one of the best company histories on a site that I've seen. So we'll link to that as well, because it's quite, it's a quite compelling story if you want to check it out yourself. Cool. All right. I'm going to check that out. Coming up, we're going to talk about the worst clean tech pivots of all time. But first, let's keep the positivity going and talk about two very successful companies in this industry, our sponsors, Wonder Capital and Scholz Technologies Group. So Wonder is an award-winning investment platform that allows individuals to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. Since 2015, individuals like you have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform, helping successfully fund over 200 large-scale projects. 
And those solar projects create enough electricity to offset more than 75 million pounds of CO2 every year. If you're interested in combating climate change and supporting solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Shoals Technologies Group is our other sponsor. They're a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and now storage. They are inventing all kinds of new products, and they do it simply. And that's why their slogan is Inventing Simple. Because it doesn't matter what the product is, they are driving toward elegance. They want to make it as easy and as inexpensive as possible to integrate solar and storage. And they're helping out EPCs all around the world. So if you want to step up your game, in solar and storage, you want the best products in the industry? Contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. Okay, so on to the to the bad side of uh, of the the pivots that we the clean tech pivots that we think were the the worst. Um, all right, so my first my first thought was uh, to select the. This is less of a company pivot and more of a, a person pivot. But um, my first nomination was going to be Elon Musk's current ongoing pivot from being untouchable superhero man to being paranoid, defensive media hater guy, Um, (laughs) which I feel like is a a relatively new phenomenon that I'm I'm not loving about him. It is. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know the extent to which that's going to impact Tesla's business, though. So, you know, that's not my actual vote. Um, my actual vote, and, and this is, uh, I think going to be interesting to talk about in the context of the frame that you talked about earlier, whether uh, it's a bad idea or, uh, unsuccessful pivot, but my nomination is Sun Edison. Um, and there are, I think two pivots in Sun Edison's history that are worth talking about. The first one I would argue was, was a good pivot. And the second one I think is a bad pivot. So for those of you who don't know the Sun Edison history. So um, the company originally, so Sun Edison, you know, founded by Jigger Shah and a couple of co-founders as a, as a developer initially of commercial solar projects and then got more into utility scale, a little bit into residential. It was a standalone company. Meanwhile, there's a semiconductor company that's a public company called MEMC Materials. They made semiconductors um, both for so, sort of semiconductor materials, both for the solar industry and for the semiconductor industry. Um, so MEMC gets a new CEO, Ahmad Jatila, in 2009. And I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast before, but I had just started at GTM in early 2009. Ahmad had just started at MEMC and he came in to visit our offices in Boston. And so we sat down with him. Um, and at the time, you know, they're making like silicon wafers. So they're, they're kind of far up in the, in the solar value chain. And Ahmad said, I want to do something big in solar. What should I do? And so, you know, we're sitting there thinking, okay, well, like, you know, maybe you should move down the value chain, like, you know, get into solar panel manufacturing, module manufacturing. You could buy one of the module manufacturers. And that was our big idea. And he kind of like nodded, but like his eyes glazed over and he clearly wasn't that interested in it. And then not long after that, uh, they bought Sun Edison, which was, uh, kind of a crazy move because they skipped steps in the value chain, right? They were making wafers um, and then all of a sudden they became a developer. So when it happened, it was considered to be a, a kind of a crazy idea. Um, that pivot, I think, was 
actually a really good one because it turned out that the margins in the solar market were shifting downstream and project development was where you were going to make a lot more of your money. And so they were prescient in getting into the downstream side of the business and being less reliant on the semiconductor side. The result of that ultimately was that Sun Edison's business grew bigger than MEMC's business and they changed their name. So that's why the public company ultimately became Sun Edison. It was originally MEMC Materials. So that was the good pivot. Right, and that actually sparked a bunch of similar acquisitions and partnerships. Well, actually, I think a lot of those, I mean, MEMC was a little later to that than many of the others. So like First Solar had already gotten into development, SunPower had already gotten into development. Both of them had made acquisitions in 2007 and 2008 to do so. Oh, was that already that early? mm -hmm, Yeah. So this was a little later than that. But what was different was, was that MEMC was not a module manufacturer. They were, they were, you know, further up in the, in the value chain. So it was, more surprising for them to do this there of course then after they did it there were a bunch of others who then uh, you know module manufacturers who got into development Um, in particular it was sort of later to the game when the chinese manufacturers did that but either way i would argue that was a good pivot um they managed to navigate the sort of margin compression on the upstream side and get into the downstream side then a few years later um, Ahmad decides to start talking about how Sun Edison was going to become the world's first renewable energy super major, and then goes on this a- acquisition spree that included First Wind, getting into wind development, including a ton of asset, international assets and developers in South America and in Europe and in MENA, including ultimately Vivint Solar trying to get into residential and just like, you know, went bananas with acquisitions. Uh, and ultimately, as we learned with financial engineering, that caused the company's demise. So my argument would be good pivot to get into downstream, bad pivot to try to become a renewable energy super major overnight. Yep. And those acquisitions were kind of a disaster to begin with. So I've recently been talking to folks who were involved in those acquisitions or worked inside Sun Edison. And in particular, that first win acquisition, I'm I'm hearing folks who, you know, know the situation. Immediately, Sun Edison started moving money around in bank accounts. Um, they, they, you know, a allegedly didn't um, issue payouts that they were supposed to. They stripped money from the bank accounts of uh, First Wind and moved them around to support other areas of the business. Like it was a complete disaster. So strategically, maybe they were doing things too quickly with no cohesive strategy. And financially, it was looking to be a disaster from the beginning because they just couldn't support it. But they, you know, they, the Ahmad thought he had his own reality distortion field that if he just talked about it enough, he could convince investors that it was going to be true. Yeah, I think that's, that's how it went down. And, you know, someday the story, the full story of exactly what sort of was the the straw that broke the camel's back for Sun Edison will be told. But, you know, clearly Sun Edison, I think, had it not done that, um, all at once, could have eventually gotten to the same place that Ahmad had envisioned, right? There's a, there's a world where there's going to be a global renewable energy super major, or clean energy super major, who could, you know, do all of the things that 
uh, Sun Edison wanted to do, which ranged, by the way, from like utility scale development to off-grid solar. Sun Edison had an off-grid uh, sort of sub-Saharan Africa-based division. So, you know, you can picture a world where there's a company that ends up doing all of that stuff. It's just not going to happen simultaneously, and it's not going to happen as quickly as Sun Edison thought it was going to. My failed pivot isn't so much a specific pivot that failed, rather... It's a failed industry that collectively pivoted the algae biofuels industry. So for those who are newer to this space, you probably haven't heard much about algae biofuels. But between, I don't know, around 2007, 2008, and 2012, there was this massive wave of companies promising tens of millions of gallons of algal biofuels. And People believed in them. In fact, I believed that in them strongly at one point. Earlier in my career, I wrote a couple stories that were, you know, less than skeptical takes on companies like Petrosun and Solix and Solazyme. And they were using different methods to cultivate and process algae for fuel. And it was really exciting what these companies were promising. And I don't think that I had seen enough failures and promises to process that. But you know, sure enough, uh, we did see a lot of failures, I think a collective industry failure. So the wave of excitement started when oil prices were approaching about $150 per barrel in 2008. And all of a sudden, you had two dozen or so companies that popped up claiming they could competitively make algae biofuels. And the story was really compelling because algae produces a ton of fat, and they can be genetically modified to produce even more fat without using up valuable agricultural land. And around this time, people were starting to raise concerns about the impact of um, of ethanol, of corn-based ethanol on agricultural land. Uh, you know, there was a serious environmental impact and questions about the carbon neutrality of those fuels. So you put all that together... And you had a lot of excitement. Investors believed in the story. Bill Gates, leading VCs, including Bill Gates, dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into startups. The government invested tens of millions of dollars. And a prominent biofuels analyst predicted that we'd see a billion gallons of algae fuels by 2014. So what happened? Not one company, not one company came remotely close to meeting their cost targets. There was a ton of interesting research, and it's still ongoing. Good science continues. I think Exxon is continuing um, its its research. But we got virtually no biofuels, from the promise of a billion gallons to zero. That's a pretty staggering miss. So when oil prices went back down, the dozens of companies in this space all pivoted at once to pharmaceuticals, algae. Um, they have antimicrobial properties and you know, important proteins that can be valuable for pharmaceutical products or even beauty products. And some are using their equipment for like fish farms. Some have shifted to conventional biofuels. Um, Eric Wessoff, who's our former editor, he has been cataloging this space for a while. And he wrote a great piece in 2017 looking at this this collective pivot. And he cataloged at least 24 companies that have made this shift all within a very short period of time all of whom were making claims about tens of millions of gallons of biofuels. So I think that you could argue that this is the single biggest collective pivot based on failure that we've witnessed in this industry. Hmm. So you're not saying this is a failed pivot. You're saying that it was failure that caused a pivot. Yes. Right? Because actually, that you, you could, I think you could make a pretty strong case that it was a pretty successful pivot in that if these companies had stuck to their original business, they would all be out of business today. 
but instead they pivoted into pharmaceuticals and things like that, and so they still exist. Right, and actually many of the companies who are making these claims who were around are still around, and more of them than I would have imagined. Right. So, okay, so this is um, failure-driven pivot. Actually, I would make the case that might be one of the most successful pivots then. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> it should have been you your could, first. You could interpret it both ways for sure. <laughs> right. Like if you're on the brink of failure and you figure out a way to keep the company alive, like good on you. That's the that's the best kind of pivot. Indeed. But I think I'm still a little bit bitter about believing some of the claims of these companies and just seeing collectively so many companies tell the public and investors that they were going to make massive amounts of fuels and um, n- none of it to materialize. I mean, it's, it made me reflect inwardly when, when all this played out over a course of a few years. And that's when I really started become becoming more jaded about mm. company claims. Yeah. I mean, I, I view that in a very positive light, not that the original company claims being wrong was a good thing, but you know, if you're taking the investor perspective, one of the things you care about most is the leadership team. Um, and you want a leadership team that is going to be able to roll with the punches, right? Because there's so much that's unpredictable when you're early stages of a business. And so, you know, if it turns out that the technology that you're pursuing is wrong for the market that you're going after, but might be right for another market, then like the best thing you could look for is, uh, is, is an exec- executive team that will make that pivot successfully that's the that's the case in which you know that i feel like the term pivot is not overused the case in which it is overused is where you just say like well we tried this thing and i don't know so you know we we pivoted and we moved on to this other thing like that you know that's less exciting but the like we had an existential crisis so we were forced to pivot and we did it successfully is great yeah but you could also make the case that investor expectations were shattered. And so these companies are doing, you know, a small business compared to the 100 million gallons or tens of millions of gallons that they promised. And so if you go in as an investor with a set of expectations, even if you've made a pivot to a smaller business, um, I would assume that you can feel pretty burned. Oh, that's definitely true. Yeah. No, I don't think that the investors in those original businesses are are doing great. I mean, you know, it's prob they they might have gotten entirely washed out. Depends how the structures ended up, but if they didn't, they're it's not like this is going to be a big return for them. Nonetheless, from the company's perspective, still better than failure. Uh, well, those are all. These are great pivots that we've talked about. Um, this has been really fun, and it's as good a time as any to to announce our uh, our big pivot to television. Right, that that the interchange is uh, now has a deal with Netflix, and we're going to be doing a run of of two seasons. Uh, get it on your streaming platform tomorrow. Yeah, they've optioned the script for the deep decarbonization draft. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they probably should. I think if we have any if we have any Netflix uh, content purchasing listeners. You know, get at Steven, would you? Yeah. Not going to happen, folks. Instead, we are sticking to the podcast world for real. Um, find us on Google Podcasts. You may have heard me mention, or you may have heard separately, that Google has launched a new podcast app. This is a pretty cool uh, thing for Android users, and Google is now thinking about remapping the world of audio and making it a first-class citizen along with video and text and images. So if you're an Android user, check out the Google Podcast app. We are there. 
Otherwise, hit us up on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or anywhere that you enjoy downloading your podcasts. Give us a rating and review. We ask it every week, but it is so important for us. We, we do appreciate the feedback. And, you know, pass on the word on social media. Send a, an email to folks. We have all sorts of ways that we get people to find the podcast, but word of mouth tends to be one of the best. Thanks for listening. Shale, this was another good one. Thanks for getting up early and talking about the big pivot. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm actually now feeling like I am uh, perfectly caffeinated. So could we just start over and do the whole thing again? <laughs> With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week.